0: Welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, an exploration of the latest news, analysis, and research regarding China's growing presence in the developing world. I'm your host, Eric Mike Sterino. This is the first episode of the Belt and Road podcast, and I just wanted to take a couple minutes just to say who I am, what the purpose of the show is going to be, and then we'll get into today's guest's. So again, my name is Eric Mike Storino. I'm currently a graduate student at North Carolina State University, where I focus on Chinese foreign industrial investment in East Africa. And I'm also working this summer at Duke University's Nicholas Institute of Environmental Policy, working on Green Belt and Road Initiative Project. I should say that this podcast has no affiliation with any institution which I'm studying. It's all my own personal opinion. I just have a very big passion for the the Belt and Road as a subject and for getting a more nuanced perspective as to what the Belt and Road is, I've seen uh, the Belt and Road often portrayed, especially in uh, larger media sources, is this kind of uh, at this domineering like 10,000 foot level where everything is about the geostrategic implications. And I really love getting into the details and seeing how a new growing and strengthening China is affecting positive and negatively on countries and individuals, and also seeing China as a multitude of actors. And also the recipient countries as a multitude of actors and looking at their agency within that. That's why I find that's kind of missing in the Belt and Road analysis as a whole. And I want to bring that in the forefront with the podcast. I'm really excited to be starting with this today. We have Emily Weinstein. She is a research analyst at Point Bello, a research and strategy firm that does a lot of work on China. She is concurrently pursuing her MA in uh, security studies at Georgetown University where she's focusing on U.S. national security policy in East Asia, as well as Chinese foreign policy. What brings her on today is a piece that she wrote for the Jamestown Foundation called The Belt and Road, A Road to China's World Cup Dream, where she talks about Chinese exportation of sport tourism, the World Cup, and how they interact with the Belt and Road Initiative. So, Emily, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, Eric.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. In relation to your article, I found it incredibly fascinating uh, in terms of just the breadth of what's included within the Belt and Road. Of course, one of the fifth goal within the Belt and Road officially is people and people bonds, and part of that is cultural and uh, tourism exchange. And one facet of that is sports tourism. So what exactly is sports tourism?
1: So sports tourism, I mean, at least in the Chinese perspective, goes back to using major sporting events as powerful domestic factors for political and economic change. We can look back at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. We can look back also even further, uh, back to the 1970s and 1971, when China used what they refer to as ping-pong diplomacy, which included China and the U.S. hosting ping-pong tournaments to promote diplomatic recovery, kind of leading up to the softening of relations and reform and opening up in 1978.
0: And so, you, you know, you brought about the 2008 Olympics. Can you expand upon, you know, the importance of how the, the Olympics shaped kind of Chinese domestic politics and also its site on the international stage?
1: So domestically, the 2008 Olympics provided China with a platform to not only show the world what it was capable of, but even show its people how far it had come. If we look back even at the 2008 at the opening ceremonies, it was a huge, modern, spectacular show. It really showcased the power of the Chinese people and Chinese society and really showed the world how far China had come from what people thought to be, you know, kind of a a backwards communist society. Besides the 2008 Olympics, I can also say that domestically sports tourism, especially with soccer, has been a growing phenomenon. Within the past 10 to 15 years, uh, a large Chinese companies, both state-owned and private, mainly private in this case, have been going around Europe and buying soccer stadiums, buying soccer teams. Uh, Italy's AC Milan is now owned by a Chinese consortium, which soccer is so big in Italy, so big in Europe. So that that's pretty significant. In addition, China's been trying to bolster its own domestic soccer league by buying up players from Europe and Latin America once they've kind of reached the end of their what people believe there to be their, you know, playing time, you know, when they get to maybe 30, 32 years old. For example, Argentina's Javier Mascherano, who was one of the, he played for Liverpool. He was a star in the um, Argentinian national team. Um, He now plays for China's Hebei China Fortune team. And he is just one of many famous international soccer stars that have kind of picked up and moved over to China and are now hoping to kind of bring more excitement to the sport domestically within China.
0: Yeah, I remember I, I lived in Guizhou province, which is the poorest province in China, but had uh, one of the major league uh, Chinese soccer teams. And, oh, when, yeah. and when I was there, uh, sponsored by Mao Tai, you know, the national liquor, and they, mm-hmm. I, I don't follow European football that closely, but all my Chinese friends were talking about some new coach that they got and one of the players and, you know, one, how much money that they gave them to play, and then they played mainly to a half-empty stadium, but I had a really wonderful time on a really cheap ticket, so. Uh, Yeah,
1: it's great. It's a cheap way for, you know, Chinese people to go and watch these amazing soccer stars that if you went back to Europe or Latin America, it would cost you an arm and a leg to even, you know, get into the stadium. Uh, So it's kind of a cool opportunity domestically, but, you know, it just shows how much China is willing to pay these international stars to come and help you know fix their own soccer league.
0: Yeah. And in relation to football, why, first of all, is soccer so important to Xi Jinping? And can you place that within the context of uh, what you're talking about in your piece about this last uh, World Cup that uh, just concluded a couple of weeks ago?
1: Yeah. So um, in writing this piece, I tried to go back and look at his history and see if I could find evidence for where he really... Kind of fell in love with soccer, and I was able to find um, a Xinhua piece. Xinhua News Network, one of the Chinese Communist Party's state-owned media conglomerates, and it's huge. It's all over China. Um, and I was able to find a piece about him growing up and playing soccer in middle school and in high school. While he was the party secretary of Fujian Province before he rose to the national level, he you know, was very involved with the Fujian provincial team. And then once he rose above the provincial level, he traveled around the world trying to use soccer, I mean, successfully using soccer to interact with other nations. Um, In 2009, he traveled to Germany for a trip and was presented with a jersey from the German team Bayern Munich. During that same trip, he met with former British Prime Minister David Cameron and was also presented with a jersey from the British national team. He's a huge fan of David Beckham. He has posed for pictures with David Beckham on countless occasions. So he's had a track record of using soccer and promoting soccer as kind of like this fun way to find common ground with these other countries that you think like, oh, China and Brazil, what do they have in common? But Xi Jinping has used soccer to kind of bridge that gap. And I think it's been really significant. He's not the first Chinese leader to show a fascination for the sport. But I would say that no other Chinese leader has expressed a love for soccer to the same degree as Xi Jinping has.
0: Yeah, and that makes for that wonderful photo that you had in your piece and that often often gets utilized of of, of, of if she kicked oh, the ball. Yeah. How did uh, Chinese firms Mm -hmm. uh, work within the the World Cup that just happened.
1: So the 2018 World Cup was a really interesting case because leading up to the 2018 World Cup, there were a number of factors that caused concern among the international community. First being the 2015 FIFA corruption scandal, which saw the removal of a number of FIFA's top leadership um, and kind of caused concern for a number of countries, a number of sponsors, uh, not wanting to really associate their name with this company. In addition to the corruption scandal in 2015, relations between the U.S., and uh, Moscow had begun to decline, you know, within the past five, ten years. And because of that, a lot of U.S. companies stepped back and really thought about reassessing Mm -hmm. their role in the World Cup and weren't sure if they wanted to attach their name to this event. So because of that, FIFA actually lost a significant number of sponsors. Again, so now leading up to the 2018 World Cup, FIFA saw itself with a huge lack of funds. Seeing this as kind of a window of opportunity, China jumped in. China and Russia have, I mean, historically have been close friends. You know, there was the, you know, Sino-Soviet split, but, you know, things have kind of I'd say probably since the 2000s, maybe 2010s, things have started to go back to a friendly relationship. I mean, recently Xi Jinping presented Vladimir Putin with this, uh, I forget exactly what it is, but it is some type of friendship medal. This, he must have presented it, I think it was about a month ago. You know, things are on the up and up for Sino-Russian relations. China took this as an opportunity to kind of jump in and portray itself as the savior of the 2018 World Cup. Like, FIFA can't go on without us. Here we go. We'll give you the money. And it's a win-win for both of us.
0: How did China support for the 2018 World Cup come to be? It Was state-owned enterprises, lots of private firms that were giving advertising dollars, or was it the Chinese state that was then uh, supporting it as a whole?
1: So for, uh, for a more general One Belt, One Road context, it is a government-directed initiative. So there are a number of state-owned enterprises that have been, that are involved in the initiative. However, you know, over the past few years, private companies have also jumped on the bandwagon because of you know the you know the attached incentives or the name recognition from the Chinese government uh, and things to that nature with regards to sponsorship in the recent world cup i would like to say that they're technically privately owned companies but they have government connections uh, I mean that's how a lot of these things go in China you know something lists itself as a as a minian so it's you know a privately owned person owned company but you know top 10 top 20 even top 50 company in China is going to have to have some type of government backing in order to really get itself on that international level so the big ones for the 2015 or 2018 excuse me world cup were Wanda Group Mengniu and Hisense Wanda Group is a giant entertainment conglomerate I I would say they're probably in the top ten, if not top five, Chinese companies currently. Mengniu actually is a much lesser-known company. They call themselves they are the official drinkable yogurt of China um they're that stuff's really
0: good yeah, yeah so
1: they are um and i'm pretty sure so china again is not known for its dairy uh, dairy is not a big staple in the chinese diet but i'm pretty sure Mengniu is one of the first if not the first wholly domestically owned dairy company in china and again they're relatively small relatively new but they made a huge push during this year's world cup they um well, here, I can step back for a second and now go into the specific kind of breakdown of FIFA sponsorship. So Wanda Group, being that big, you know, internationally known company, spent $150 million on Tier 1 sponsorship, which for yep. the World Cup, I mean, if anyone watched, you saw signs for Wanda Group on every stadium, every game on that little flashing board that goes behind yeah. you know, all the players. It was there every 10 seconds. That's what that 150 million dollars went for. There there were a, d- a number of other, you know, additional benefits that you, that companies got from being a tier 1 sponsor, but um I won't go into all, all of those now if you want to, you know, know more about those, they are in my paper. Um but MungNeo yeah. and uh, some of the other Chinese companies like Hisense uh, opted for that two-tier sponsorship, and the Chinese companies actually accounted for 60% of this year's World Cup's uh, tier F- two 50%. investments. 60. 60%. Yeah. Wow. 60% of the total tier two investments. Um, which is pretty significant. The other two interesting things about Mungneo. Mungneo actually went on to become, and I'm saying this in quotations, though, excuse me, the official drinkable yogurt of the 2018 World <laughs> Cup. <laughs> so there was that. Um, in addition, they also, in February 2018, they announced that they had signed Argentinian soccer star Lionel Messi to be their official brand ambassador, which for anyone who doesn't know soccer, Lionel Messi he's is the, like... He's
0: LeBron James.
1: So I'm, yeah. I'm a Yankee fan, so I was going to say something like <laughs> the Derek Jeter, but y- yes, he's the LeBron James yeah. of international soccer. You have to imagine that Lionel Messi doesn't sign on to just any... Yeah sponsorship or branding opportunity. They most likely had to pay him a significant amount of money. And the interesting fact about this is that they actually have not disclosed how much they paid him. So one can assume that it was some absurd amount and, of
0: money. And so another thing I found really fascinating was there's lots of these, some states, some very large private firms that invested lots of money into the World Cup for advertising and such. But also these firms outside of the World Cup have been utilizing the Belt and Road kind of branding, if you will. Can you go into a little bit about that?
1: Private companies have used Belt and Road for, it, it's as the Chinese like to say, it's a win-win <laughs> mutual yes. win-win scenario um, so for example like Wanda group you think okay so this company is a very large well-established company that already has already has a world a worldwide presence why do they need the World Cup why do they need Bell and Road so Wanda group is actually an interesting case where you can see that they're using it to export elements of soft power such as you know public interest, cultural self-confidence, um, and they're using this public welfare card to kind of create a positive global image of Chinese enterprises, Chinese, specifically Chinese private enterprises you know, around the world so they can come across as more attractive in global markets and, you know, other countries. Wanda Group specifically has come under recent scrutiny for a number of kind of financial misdoings. I'll just yes. put it at that, in both overseas and domestic projects within the past five, 10 years. Um, so, in jumping onto Belt and Road, they are not only putting the, well, what the Chinese government is promoting as this positive going out, wanting to help the global community image, they're also using that to then be like, oh, ignore all of these things that we've done in the past. You know, we're, we're part of this One Belt, One Road initiative initiative. We're part of promoting this mutual understanding. We want to help the international community. We want to just do good. Um, so it's really highlighting that social responsibility aspect of, well, highlighting and taking advantage of that social responsibility aspect of the One Belt, One Road initiative that the government has really tried to highlight in, in their One Belt, One Road projects
0: abroad. Uh, for the WANDA group, do you have any like specific examples? of? Like, it sounds like Belt and Road as CSR, as corporate so- so- social responsibility within other markets within the developing world. Do you have any sort of uh, examples of uh, what WANDA has done?
1: So I can't necessarily speak to WANDA group, but I can speak to Mungneo. Meng in addition to, you know, trying to participate heavily in the World Cup, they have also gone, you know, full force into One Belt, One Road. And actually, in September 2017, the company was awarded the Belt and Road Constructive Case Award, which... It's a a weird award. It's it's the Chinese government uses it. Oh, excuse me. So it's not necessarily the Chinese government. It is, well, the Belt and Road Constructive Case Award was given through the People's Daily, which is another, similar to Xinhua, another state-owned media entity. So not directly from the Chinese government, but in in a sense, yes. This was given during a Belt and Road media cooperation forum where Meng was commended for its dedication to promoting China's One Belt, One Road. This Mm -hmm. ceremony was a chance for an arm of the Chinese government to honor specifically private companies that were doing that it believed were doing a good job at promoting One Belt One Road promoting the ideals of One Belt One Road and I actually don't have like concrete examples of what Meng was doing but the Meng Party Secretary, uh, a woman named Wu Wen gave a keynote speech at this 2017 People's Daily One Belt, One Road Media f- Cooperation Forum, where she noted that over the past few years... The spirit, as she likes to say, of the One Belt, One Road initiative has not only, like, Mungneo is not only working to promote this for the Chinese government, but this initiative has also provided Mungneo with, and this is quote here, with a rich foundation for development and has helped the company to develop an internationally renowned brand. So that's a really good example of where you can see that mutual, you know, win-win case where Mung is not only helping the Chinese government, but the Chinese government initiative is also apparently helping Mung Yeah,
0: and that's just fascinating of where you have such a multitude of actors within China. And when a a policy proposal or initiative, actually, it's definitely not a policy, of something like Belt and Road or prior to this, it was the Go Global initiative, you have, Mm -hmm. or the Chinese Dream would probably be a better example, you'll Mm -hmm. have... Provincial authorities, local authorities, you have private companies, you have just individuals who then utilize that kind of for well, for their own purposes. And so, this case mm-hmm. of Mengniu, this large private firm that certainly has connections with your Chinese officials because it is a larger firm, but it is a private firm utilizing the language mm-hmm. and the kind of stated goals and ideals of the Belt and Road Initiative as a way of producing positive PR for them, basically domestically and internationally.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's
0: it's fascinating. Um, So these are the private firms and kind of going back to sports tourism as a whole. uh, I do know that the Chinese government has also been doing things abroad as part of like Belt and Road sports tourism things. Can you just showcase some examples of what they've done?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Within the past two years, even the Chinese government has really been working to working with the state administration of tourism in China to kind of mold the Belt and Road Initiative, into something that can be used to promote cultural exchange. Belt and Road has a few different pieces, and I know we've covered it earlier a little bit, but just for a reminder, there is a huge cultural exchange component of Belt and Road in addition to kind of a going out into the world and doing infrastructure building, doing things like that. Education, cultural exchange, those kind of activities are a really big part of this initiative. So for example, in July of 2017, the China State General Administration of Sports, in conjunction with the State Administration of Tourism, released this uh, Belt and Road Sports Tourism Development Action Plan. So this was kind of the foundation policy that aimed to incorporate the central themes of China's Belt and Road Initiative into the country's nascent sports tourism industry. Since this policy was released, we've seen examples of, of different Chinese government entities really working to promote this. So for example, earlier this year in April, the China Football Association, which is a state-owned entity under the State General Administration of Sports that I just mentioned, held an exhibition that they called the – so this was actually the second annual, but they called it the Belt and Road Cup. <laughs> um, so this was in Hainan, which is um, a little island off the southern coast of China in the South China yeah. Sea. Um, and they invited – teams from, not only from China, but from Azerbaijan, from the Czech Republic, from Hungary, um, to compete in these kind of friendly matches. Interestingly, these three countries, Azerbaijan, Czech Republic, and Hungary, are also three countries that China has really targeted its one belt, one road infrastructure building activities and things like that. Building railroads, building roads, helping with any kind of infrastructure rehabilitation instead of, you know, so we've had the one side where China is going to these countries and helping them, but now We've seen China inviting them to participate in these fun, well, quote unquote, <laughs> fun, you know, uh, cultural exchange activities. The just a little bit of background on this Belt and Road Cup. This cup was founded on the eve of the 2017 Belt and Road International Cooperation Forum, which is a big platform for China to get together with other, you know, participating Belt and Road countries and talk about their plans, their yes. goals. So this soccer tournament was established to promote people-to-people exchanges between China and these other countries. More specifically about this tournament that happened in April, you know Chinese government officials were involved in kind of the ceremonial parts of it. For example, the deputy mayor of Haikou which is the city in Hainan where this, where this event occurred. Uh, her name is Ren Qinghua. She spoke of the significance of Haikou in China's Belt and Road strategy. So again, looking at that mutual win-win, like what can you do for Belt and Road and what can Belt and Road do for you? Because um, Haikou and Hainan as a whole is one of China's most popular tourist destinations. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful like tropical island. Everyone loves to go there for vacation. Yeah this soccer tournament was an opportunity for Haiko to kind of promote itself, like, oh, look how beautiful we are, we're a wonderful tourist destination. But here, Chinese government, we're also helping you, you know, promote your Belt and Road initiative. So the mayor, this mayor, uh, Ren Qinghua also emphasized that soccer was an important platform for, like I said earlier with Xi Jinping, it's a platform for shared common interests across international borders. So really working to boost that mutual cooperation, we're the same, even though we're different attitude.
0: Yeah, and that that is so fascinating because you know one thing that's often missed. I mean, there is grander goals that the uh, Chinese state places out, but most, if not all, provinces and even some municipalities within China also have their own Belt and Road plan. So, a place like Hainan, like you just said, very mm-hmm. popular tourist destination. I know it has lots of tourists from Russia that go there as well. But mm-hmm. kind of the decentralized nature of putting, utilizing the idea of Belt and Road. So, we're the great tourism place. Have the sports tourism, uh, and our province. Uh, you know, win win situation, cultural exchange. Everyone mm-hmm. loves football. Yes. So fascinating. <laughs> um, well, great. Emily, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on for the first episode of the Belt and Road podcast. I know I'm putting you on the spot right now, but I, I just love the Sun Syndica so much, of uh, recommendations. Recommendations of either something, another article you've read, something about Belt and Road, something about China, or it could be something oh. different, uh, just a movie or anything. But uh, if it was something China-specific, could add that right now.
1: Yeah, so I am not actually officially affiliated with this organization, but if you're interested in finding more information on China and soccer... There is actually the China Soccer Observatory. If you Google it, I'm sure it'll come up. It's actually, I want to say it's through it's through a British university, huh. but they have published a number of really interesting articles about not only the World Cup, but about just China and soccer development, both men's and women's soccer. So they're... Super interesting, super well-written pieces. Um, I would definitely recommend those.
0: Well, great. I'll I'll, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Again, Emily Weinstein is a research analyst at Point Bello, a research and strategy firm that does a lot of work on China. Uh, She's concurrently pursuing her MA in security studies at Georgetown University, where she's focused on U.S. national security policy in East Asia, as well as Chinese foreign policy. The piece which talked about today through the Jamestown Foundation, The Belt and Road, A Road to China's World Cup Dream, is up on the Jamestown Foundation's website. We'll put a link on the show notes. And Emily, if somebody wants to follow you, are you active on social media?
1: I am. I am on Twitter at EmilySW1. Feel free to follow me, and you can continue to see me reacting to China's soccer ambitions, like Cristiano Ronaldo posing in front of the Forbidden City last week.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, wonderful. Um, well, was will definitely put that in the show notes too. Again, thank you so much, Emily, for coming on, and this has been the Belt and Road Podcast.